Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the Florida Public Archaeology Network is helping to protect and preserve historic cemeteries throughout the state. Cemeteries are outdoor museums. You know, what happens above ground is reflected in the headstones and what's happening below the surface as well. The legacy of Patrick Smith is being celebrated around Florida. We'll talk with the author of A Land Remembered. There's not too many writers left in Florida, I don't think who've been at it as long as I have. Ernest Hemingway's Cats and much more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Students taking the Crypt course presented by the Florida Public Archaeology Network get hands-on experience cleaning historic headstones using approved methods that will preserve them for generations to come. The Crypt course focuses on the preservation of historic cemeteries, laws regulating these sites, and the proper cleaning of headstones. The Crypt course was developed by Sarah Miller, director of the FPAN Northeast region. For me, coming from my former life as a research archaeologist doing more cemetery work, it just seemed to come about organically that there was a lot of need in the community of people wanting to volunteer, get active, do something about the cemeteries. So it developed as, um, you know, addressing the needs of cities with their... Um, abandoned cemeteries and a way to deliver classroom instruction but so important to get that hands-on component out in the field so that they can they can tomorrow go out and get active cleaning some headstones. FPAN's crypt courses have been presented in historic cemeteries around the state including northeast Florida, west Florida, and most recently in east central Florida. Any cemetery anyway is going to be different from another and each one of the crypts is really uh, such a different offering based on the cemetery. So the first crypt we did was in Palatka, where there are four city-owned cemeteries. There were some people volunteering to clean but using harmful chemicals, and we were trying to give some education for the city on what materials to use while cleaning and not doing harm and uh, get those kind of more civic volunteers involved. Whereas, you know, the next crypt up would be more like this one. You have more historic preservation um, history interested people that are just wanting to do some community service and aren't as interested as in the laws or the chemical makeup. So those would be in like this, private owned cemeteries by an organization. Uh, the cemetery we're at today has just a maybe a dozen headstones and so half of our crypts have had that small character feel but some have been in large you know thousands of headstones these large cemeteries. Having taught the hands-on crypt courses throughout Northeast Florida, Sarah Miller is training personnel in other FPAN regions to instruct students. 
Rachel Wentz is director of FPAN's East Central Region. Kevin Gadusko, my outreach coordinator, and I are actually here to observe Sarah because we want to be able to uh, bring this to our own region. And since Sarah has really spearheaded this whole project and brought it toward the, to, throughout the state, we're here to kind of learn from her. So we spent the morning going over how to do just what we're doing, how to clean headstones, how to take into consideration all the management aspects of a cemetery, all the preservation aspects, like not only the care of the headstones, but the grounds themselves, trees, obstructions, access, all of those issues that come into effect when dealing with cemeteries. So we spent the morning within the race house going over those programs. We talked about the laws that regulate not only cemeteries, but unmarked burials, human remains, what to do when they're discovered. And then, of course, this afternoon, has spent putting this into action and letting the students have a chance to come out and and learn, you know, use what they've learned. The Cemetery Resource Protection Training, or CRIPT course, that we visited took place at the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley. After a morning of instruction indoors, students from local colleges, historical societies, and other volunteers got hands-on experience in the historic Houston Cemetery from the late 19th century and early 20th century. Sarah Miller says that many volunteers in historic cemeteries mean well, but make big mistakes. Well, the number one is bleach. Bleach is a household product. It's inexpensive, and the intent is in the right place. They want to help protect the cemetery and clean it up. But the bleach, because of the salts, is reacting with impurities in the stone. They're actually causing um, destruction of the stone down the road or permanent staining. So it's been a very good education campaign coming out of Crypt is not to use bleach, just use water like we have today with really dramatic results or conservation grade biocides or cleaners that have been accepted by conservation groups. But in, you know, a word, Crypt is all about protection. What's going to make sure this cemetery is here a hundred years from now? And it's not just the cleaning, but we talked about how to record um, a cemetery for the Florida Master Site file. And according to all the experts I've talked to, that's the number one thing you can do to protect a cemetery is get it listed in the state's inventory of cemetery sites. Kevin Gadusko is Outreach Coordinator for the FPAN East Central Region. He and volunteer Patty Goodson have been mapping historic cemeteries and getting them recorded in Florida's master site file. It was a project that really begun under my predecessor, Greg Harding, uh, with Patricia uh, Goodson uh, as an intern for, through University of Central Florida. And what they did was compile a list of known historic cemeteries in Brevard County, uh, compare that with the Florida Master Site File, and set about recording those that are not in the Florida Master Site File. We first uh, just get an overview of the cemetery and record the size and kind of um, a general opinion of the significance and uh, the threats that are currently facing the cemetery. We try to analyze just a broad um, details of the cemetery and then record that to the state. As the process of documenting historic cemeteries continues, Kevin Gadusko and Patty Goodson say that crypt courses can help volunteers preserve and properly maintain the sites. Certainly it's something that we'd like to continue and sort of uh, bring into the project that we've already begun. There are certain, certainly many other cemeteries that we can go revisit and sort of take care of. A lot of them are left to the elements, uh, vegetation. That's one of the biggest threats to a lot of the cemeteries in Brevard County. Um, many of them are just completely overgrown, so little TLC would go a long way. Right, there's a lot of uh, issues with we can't figure out who owns the cemeteries, so therefore no one really takes care of them. So they leave it to the state or the county or the city to take care of them, and sometimes they're neglected in that way. So we need to definitely go in and take care of them as part of our project.
Jessica Swenson participated in a recent crypt course. Um, I am an anthropology student at UCF, so I saw this course um, was offered as an extracurricular through our um, undergraduate um, Hominids Anonymous group. And I've always just been interested in cemeteries and gravestones. I grew up, you know, right down the street from, so they've always kind of had like an interesting thing, an interesting feeling, an interesting quality about them to me. And what was the best thing about this uh, Oh, I loved doing the field, like, hands-on, cleaning the gravestones. I mean, it it really shows you, you know, how this is a great course. It shows you how to, you know, care for the gravestones and cemeteries, and it's it was a lot of fun. Um, it shows you what a difference, you know, just one person can make. Charlene Mays also took the crypt course at the Houston Cemetery. I'm a mortuary science major, and ever since I was little, I've basically I've been fascinated with people that have passed and gone on, and um, I think, you know, the, to honor them is the best thing. And so I'm going into embalming, and I think this would be a great thing to do. As Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society, Ben DiBiase helps to manage the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens, including the Houston Cemetery. You know, at the Rossiter House uh, Museum, we don't have any sort of formal training and maintenance of uh, maintenance of historic cemeteries. This has really provided us a basic level uh, of how to, to maintain the day-to-day, how to keep them clean. Uh, so actually, on an annual basis, we're going to start holding probably public days, have volunteers come out, and the lessons that we got from from this course, we're going to help uh, to teach others and, and maintain the cemetery using the uh, now you know best standard practices. The Cemetery Resource Protection Training, or CRIPT course, provides students with skills to preserve cemeteries and a unique opportunity to contemplate many periods of Florida history. Sarah Miller. Cemeteries are outdoor museums. You know, what happens above ground is reflected in the headstones and what's happening below the surface as well. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. His beard may be stubborn like a cut over sugar can't feel. His clothes may be dirty. But the look in his eyes lets you know he won't yield He's from a breed that has died But he has survived The world he once knew is gone He's an old cracker cowman Existing a long way from home Patrick Smith is the author of ten books, most set in Florida But it's his 1984 novel, A Land Remembered, that is his best-loved work His son, Rick Smith, is currently giving a multimedia presentation about A Land Remembered at many venues throughout the state. Upcoming appearances in the next few weeks include presentations at Forever Florida near St. Cloud, Okeechobee High School, the Palm Beach County Historical Society, Santa Fe College in Gainesville, the Museum of Florida History in Tallahassee, and many others. Health problems have left Patrick Smith immobile and unable to join his son for these presentations. We visited with Patrick Smith at his home in Merritt Island to discuss his career and find out how he's doing. 
up and down. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good. But I still can't get up, you know, and get around. Most popular novels have a year or so of good sales, maybe getting another boost when a paperback version comes out. But Patrick Smith's A Land Remembered has been a bestseller in Florida ever since it was first published in 1984 by Pineapple Press. You know, that's hard to understand sometimes. Every year, it gets more and more readers instead of, like you say, stopping. And really gaining with young readers, most of the schools in Florida now teach it. And the young kids, they really like it because they had no idea that Florida was ever like its picture than the land remembered. And another thing they say is, before they read this novel, they never knew what those words, family values, meant. Because people today don't live like they did back then, you know, close to each other. And it's changed their lives according to what they say. It's been a surprise to me. The novel A Land Remembered follows the fictional McGivey family for more than a century from their arrival in Florida in 1858 through 1968. The family struggles at first to live off the land but becomes very successful in the cattle industry. The last generation covered in the book loses connection with the land, selling it off for development. Of course, in the novel, the last of the McIvies, Saul is the one who really, uh, what do you call it, progress, built all those structures and everything and came to regret it. So before he died, he gave a lot of land to the state that he preserved forever is wildlife preserved, so he he regretted what he had done. No one family experienced everything that the McIvies did, but almost everything in the book did happen to one pioneer family or another. Patrick Smith. Of course, that, that book is not based on one family. The characters are composites of different families, but it happened, yeah. Patrick Smith has had success with other books, including The River is Home, Alapata, and The Beginning. His novel Angel City was made into a film starring Paul Winfield, Jennifer Jason Leigh, and Ralph Waite. Patrick Smith. It's seven novels altogether, but um, only one of them really was as popular as The Land Remembered. That was Forever Island. It was. It's been published all over the world. There's not too many writers left in Florida, I don't think, who've been at it as long as I have. My first novel, The River is Home, was published in 1953. Over the period of time from then to now, I've written a total of 10 books. I know that's not a lot of books, but you know, I did it. At the same time, I held down a full-time job, and that makes a lot of difference. Patrick Smith is the author of the much-loved Florida novel, A Land Remembered. His son, Rick Smith, is currently giving a multimedia presentation about A Land Remembered at many venues throughout the state. Upcoming appearances in the next few weeks include presentations at Forever Florida near St. Cloud, Okeechobee High School, the Palm Beach County Historical Society, Santa Fe College in Gainesville, the Museum of Florida History in Tallahassee, and many others. Oh, bone myself. He's gone, but the legend lives on. Jake Summerlin.
an old Sam Key, beginning and ending of an era now gone. Men like Doc Norman somehow let the bottle get them down. These old Florida cowboys are like eagles tied to the ground. And dirt bikes scream over land that used to be scrubbed out trails. And interstate highways have taken the place of old Mr. Flagler's rails. And condos rise. From the land and space shuttles fly And the old cracker cowmen don't know How it all passed them by That was Frank and Ann Thomas performing the song Cracker Cowman. This is Florida Frontiers. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben tells us that the FHS archive contains more than historic documents and papers. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so we have um, a mortar and pestle that would have been used by um, uh, Seminole Indians um, as early as uh, the late 19th century. You know, so we know that this particular piece is at least 100 years old. It was donated to the Florida Historical Society um, sometime around 1908. Um, and it's really interesting. It's actually um, the base of the mortar and pestle, the actual mortar itself, is made from an old tree stump. Um, generally, they would have used live oak, you know, a very uh, dense hardwood. It, it, it weighs about 20 pounds. I mean, it's, it's a heavy object. Um, and there's a hole that would have been hand-drilled into the center of this, uh, into this stump, and it would have been used for mashing up corn. And then the pestle, the, the, the actual handle itself, uh, is about five feet long, uh, and it's also very dense, probably made from a, from a live oak, a straight live oak branch. Um, and it would have had a handle on top and then sort of a rounded uh, uh, piece at the bottom that they would have used for actually grinding, you know, physically grinding this corn together uh, to make uh, uh, various dishes, you know, so that were uh, uh, traditional to the, to the seminal uh, culture. And looking at these objects, you can see that they, they were actually used. These aren't just uh, something that was created for a museum or something. These were, were used by the Seminoles. Oh, absolutely. Uh, like I said, the, the, the objects were donated in 1908, uh, so they haven't been used uh, since, since 1908. But you can tell they, they're very well worn. There are cracks uh, uh, throughout the, the actual pestle, the handle itself. And you can actually see some of the original hash marks you know, with the, 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 the hand tools that the Indians would have been using. Uh, to make this piece are still evidence. You can see where it was actually carved by hand, uh, which is really interesting. Now, not all of the items that have been donated to the Florida Historical Society over the years remain in the collection. Uh, some have been shared with museums. Right, that's absolutely right. Um, one in particular is an old uh, uh, bell from a Spanish mission. Uh, the, the bell itself dates from uh, about 1758, is what's stamped on the bell. Um, it's really, it's kind of an interesting story that the bell was actually found at the bottom of a pond up in Madison County, uh, Florida, back in 1840 uh, by a, a couple of uh, cracker cowboys, a couple of cowboys who had noticed the bell sort of sticking out of this pond during a, a period of drought, and the, and the water level had fallen so far that the, the bronze bell was now sticking out. Uh, so they dug it out with uh, using their horses. They pulled it out of the pond uh, and then held on to it. And it was in the family for years, and then eventually it was donated to the society um, sometime around the turn of the century, early, 
uh, early 1900s. Um, but but now it's actually you can you can still see the bell. It's on display in Tallahassee in the in the state capitol at the uh, state capitol museum, uh, and it's within a you know a plexiglass enclosure. Um, but I encourage uh, encourage people to to go uh, take a look at it. It's really neat. Now, some of the artifacts in the Florida Historical Society collection are associated with historic events, such as the the two rifles you have here. Right. Yeah, this is really interesting. Um, so we have two uh, long long barrel uh, muskets, essentially. They would have been their flintlock uh, rifles, and they're really big and heavy. They each weigh about 12 to 15 pounds. Um, they're between 50 and 60 caliber, caliber um, rifles, so they're really big weapons. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll grab one uh, so we can take a look at it now. According to our, our donation records uh, and according to some historic records, these two rifles were used in a duel in Tallahassee in 1839 uh, by uh, uh, Alston and, and Reed, and they were two uh, leaders of, of their respective political parties uh, in, in Tallahassee at a time when dueling was not only accepted but uh, encouraged uh, in order to prove one's uh, manhood. Generally, if you were challenged to a duel, uh, you would have to accept and, and um uh, oftentimes, it obviously ended in ended badly for for one of the two <laughs> participants. This time, it was actually Alston. Uh, and uh, according to the historic record, um, both Alston and Reed used uh, what they what they call Jaeger rifles, which is a German word for a hunting rifle. Um, so we're not 100% sure that these were the two rifles used in the duel, but but we're um, fairly positive these were donated by um, some of the uh, uh, descendants of of uh, Reed. Um, who held on to the rifles and, and claimed that it was used um, during that duel. So, like I said, we're not 100% sure, but we're, but we're fairly certain that these two rifles were used in the duel. And, of course, one of them uh, ultimately killed um, Alston on that day in, in December of 1839. Well, great. Well, thanks for uh, sharing these objects with us today, Ben. Absolutely. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. If you visit Key West, you can stop by the home of writer Ernest Hemingway, where he wrote A Farewell to Arms and other work. While you're there, you can pet a descendant of the author's six-toed cats. Robert Castanello from robertcastanello.com has more. He was just known by his family and friends and neighbors for his love of animals, cats and dogs, especially cats. That was Carlene Brennan a writer who has spent over 30 years researching the life and work of Ernest Hemingway. Cats have become so associated with Hemingway and his life in Key West that they have become synonymous with he and his legacy in the city. Miss Brennan spoke with us about how Hemingway's early life helped to foster a lifelong love for cats. 
as a child, he had grown up with cats, and when he was sick, the cats were always on the bed with him and and giving him unconditional love. They would comfort him and and help him in his healing of whatever his childhood illnesses were. And also when he wrote, the cats would be on his desk, on the windowsill, by his feet. They were They were around him constantly, so he never felt alone when he was working. He always had the company of his cats. He was content. He had their friendship. He had this wonderful atmosphere of the pets. And and so I think his well-being and his work as a writer were affected by his love of these animals and the companionship that he received from these animals. Miss Brennan paints a picture of Hemingway's life surrounded by his cats. Here she describes some of his daily routine. He lived in Key West for nine years, and during that time period, he had adopted uh, many cats, primarily stray cats in the neighborhoods, abandoned cats, uh, even the neighborhood cats would climb his fence to visit. And during this time period, he was known for his love of cats, and he would sit in his on his veranda, according to a man that worked for him for nine years, and he would read to his cat, and the cats would be sitting around him close to his feet, and he would keep a diary of the cat's birth and death and illnesses and so forth. Hemingway lived all around the world, yet it is only his time in Key West and the Hemingway Home and Museum in Key West that is so closely associated with cats. Ms. Brennan explains to us why that is. People focus primarily on the Key West cats, and they were very fascinated by them because they had the polydectal cats with these extra toes, and the fact that these cats are descendants uh, of Hemingway's original cats and, and, and the caretakers of the Hemingway house do such a marvelous job taking care of the cats that it's just become a, a lovely sanctuary. Cat lovers from, you know, all, all over the world come here to visit the cats as well as, you know, to visit the Hemingway house. Miss Brennan tells us that being one of Hemingway's favorite cats entitled you to not only special privileges, affections from a doting owner, but also immortality in the pages of American literature. He had one cat, boys. He was his best cat friend. He had him 14 years. He called him brother. The cat followed him everywhere. The cat slept on his chest every night, and he was there when Hemingway wrote. He had a special place at the dining table and his own wine glass to drink water out of. He would go for long walks with Hemingway. The boys died of a heart attack in, in 1956, and Hemingway was absolutely devastated. He immortalized him in his book, Islands in the Stream, that was published after his death, and he just poured out his heart and his feelings about boys in, in this book. That was Carlene Brennan, and I'm Robert Castanello with... Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.